To every man there openeth a way and ways and a way. And the high soul climbs the highway and the low soul gropes the low. And in between, on the misty flats, the rest drift to and fro. But to every man there openeth a highway and a low. And every man decideth the way his soul shall go. That poem, entitled Two Ways, was written by the English novelist, poet, journalist, and hymn writer William Dunkerley, who wrote under the pseudonym of John Oxenham. And as only the poet can do, Oxenham captures in just ten lines of verse an essential biblical truth. At the beginning of our lives, when we are young and the whole expanse of our life lays open before us, our futures have the appearance of an interstate highway with hundreds of different exits leading to an infinite number of different destinations. To every man there openeth a way and ways and a way. Few consciously choose the low way and even fewer consciously choose the high Most of us simply drift aimlessly through the misty flats somewhere in between, giving little to no thought either to their direction or their destiny. But in the end, all of those ways between the highway and the low are merely an illusion. There are in reality only two roads a man can travel, the highway and the low And every man decideth the way his soul shall go. You see, life is essentially binary. Throughout Scripture, humanity is divided into two groups. The saved and the lost. The righteous and the wicked. The wise and the foolish. The sheep and the goats. The high soul and the low. And these two groups tread two very different paths leading to two very different destinations. And the truth that Oxenham vividly portrays is that a conscious decision is required in order to climb the highway. Simply drifting aimlessly to and fro through the misty flats does not lead to life. This is essential biblical wisdom which constantly calls upon us to choose wisely the way that our soul shall go because decisions determine destinies. The highway leads to blessing, salvation, and life everlasting. The low way leads to cursing, destruction, and everlasting death. And the first psalm captures this binary nature of life, comparing and contrasting two kinds of men, the righteous and the wicked. These two men have two very different authorities, bearing two different results and leading to two different destinies. But what fundamentally separates the righteous from the wicked is in how they relate to the Lord. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, verse 6, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the righteous man. He is in covenant with the righteous man. And as the Psalms will show us, what separates the righteous from the wicked is this one essential fact. It is not that the righteous differ from the wicked and that the righteous prosper while the wicked suffer, at least not in this life. Psalm 73 will make that plain as the psalmist observes that the wicked prosper, appear to have no trouble, and are always at ease as they increase in riches, which leaves him to wonder if it is in vain that he has kept his heart clean and washed his hands in innocence. Neither is the difference that the righteous are sinless while the wicked are the obvious sinners. Psalms 32 and 51 are enough to disabuse us of that notion as they are filled with confessions of iniquity and 
transgressions and pleas for mercy. Know the fundamental difference between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous man is known by God. The Lord has set his saving covenant mercies upon him. And because of that covenant mercy, the righteous man is besotted with God. If you are uncomfortable with emotional language, men, you're going to struggle with the Psalms. The Psalms are written by unabashed lovers of God. He delights in the Lord. He loves his maker. Psalm 1 functions as the introduction to this love song or these collections of love songs. It's the gateway to the rest of the Psalms. It invites us, the reader, into this covenant relationship with the living God. It invites us to walk the highway that leads to life. Last week we concluded a year-long study of the Gospel of Mark, and Lord willing, I intend to start Paul's letter to the Romans in September. But between now and then, I want to begin exploring the Psalms. And since Romans is a long, dense, glorious, rich book, I intend to take periodic breaks from it to come up for air, so to speak, And to return back to the Psalms from time to time. And there's historical precedent for doing so in the Protestant tradition. You will recall that it was not only his study of the Romans, in particular his discovery that the just shall live by faith from Romans 1.17, but it was also his study of the Psalms that led Martin Luther to conversion and to lasting peace with God. In the Psalms, he found words that gave voice to the cries of his own anguished soul. Like Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And Luther said, I feel like that. He also found clear declarations of God's saving mercies, like Psalm 32, 1 and 2, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And Luther thought, how can I be blessed like that man? These declarations caused him to hope. And that hope was realized that night in the tower in the Wittenberg monastery when the gates of heaven swung open and the glorious doctrine of justification by faith came bursting into his soul. The soaring theological heights which we will climb over the next two years in Romans are not abstract doctrines. In fact, there is no such thing as an abstract doctrine. All theology, because it is the study of God and his ways, is intensely practical. And the Psalms help us to get at that practical nature of the theology expressed in Romans. God is not some distant deity that we can sit back, kick around different notions of what he might be like, and then go out to lunch as if we were theoretical physicists discussing the nature of black holes. God is both majestically transcendent and he is intensely imminent. We are his creatures and we exist by him and we exist for him. The author of Hebrews expressed it well in Hebrews 4.13 when he wrote that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I like the way the King James Version renders that last phrase. We are naked and exposed before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The majestic and merciful, the sovereign and stunning God of Romans is the God with whom we have to do. And the Psalms show the people of Israel, our ancient brothers and sisters in the faith, 
as they have doings with God. William Van Gemmeren calls the Psalms, quote, windows into Israel's faith that show us how God's people in the past related to him. And lest we imagine that they lived so long ago in such a different culture, under a different covenant, that their trials and triumphs of faith are irrelevant to us, I would challenge you to read the Psalms and see if the psalmists do not give voice to your own hopes and fears, to your own trials and tribulations, to your own triumphs and failures, to your own sins and struggles. You see, the human condition has not changed over the last 3,000 years, nor has God changed. And though the messianic hope expressed throughout the Psalms, we will highlight the first Psalm that stands upon that messianic hope next week. Although that messianic hope was unfulfilled in their day, it has been fulfilled now in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That hope has not yet been revealed in full. Therefore, we, though we stand on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are not in so different a place than they were. They were people of the faith. They were sons of Abraham. They were sinners in need of mercy. They battled enemies without and within. They hoped in a coming Messiah and they looked for a coming kingdom. Is not the same true of us? We are people of faith. We are sons of Abraham. We are sinners in need of mercy. We too battle enemies within and without. We also hope in a Messiah who has already come, yet who is coming again, and we look for his kingdom, which he will bring with him in glory in a new heavens and a new earth. Therefore, I invite you to take this journey with me through both the Psalms and Romans to see this God with whom we have to do and find out how we are to do with him. The Psalms is a book unlike any other in the canon of Scripture. It is the longest book in the Bible. It contains 150 Psalms. The next longest, Isaiah, has only 66 chapters. It contains the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119 has 176 verses. And the shortest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 117, has only two verses. The Psalms are quoted more than any other Old Testament book. Nearly a third of all Old Testament quotations and allusions found in the New Testament come from the book of Psalms. More authors contributed to the Psalms than did any other book. David, Asaph, the sons of Korah, Solomon, Moses, Haman, Ethan, and others. Not to mention the innumerable editors who had a hand in compiling the Psalter into its final form. It was composed over the longest period of time, nearly a thousand year period spanning almost the entire Old Testament era. Psalm 90, for instance, is ascribed to Moses. The author of the first five books of the Bible was written sometime around 1410 B.C., Nearly half of the Psalms are credited to David, who wrote sometime around 1000 B.C. The last Psalm to be written appears to be Psalm 126, written after Israel's return from exile in Babylon, perhaps as late as 430 B.C., if it was written by Ezra, as many scholars think. Gerald Wilson, the celebrated Old Testament scholar and expert in the Psalms, he highlights this incredible fact that this single book comprises Psalms written over a period of a thousand years by comparing the Psalms to Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, the language of which is indiscernible to the modern reader. If you were to pick up an English anthology and you were opening to the Canterbury Tales, you, would, you wouldn't be able to make heads or tails out of what Chaucer is saying. This, and yet, that Canterbury Tales was written 600 years ago, which is only two-thirds of the span of the time during which the Psalms were written. This accounts for why our Bibles will at times have widely divergent translations of the same verse. There will be times in upcoming weeks when I will read 
a psalm in the ESV and come to a verse and you will look down at yours and it appears nothing like what I've just read. It's because language evolved over time and going back to some of the most ancient Hebrew to be found in Scripture makes it exceedingly difficult to translate. I want to give you a few more introductory notes on the psalms before we begin. Not all psalms are of the same literary type. Um, Scholars differ over how to classify the different types of psalms, but in general, there's an agreement that there are about seven different types of psalms to be found in the Psalter. There are wisdom psalms, which provide guidance for godly or righteous living. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. There are royal psalms, which describe the coming reign of the messianic king. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. There are psalms of lament that record the psalmist's emotional cries to the Lord for deliverance from trouble. Psalm 3 would be an example of a psalm of lament. There are imprecatory psalms which invoke God's wrath upon the psalmist's adversaries who are also God's adversaries. Those are the psalms that you read and you grimace a little bit because the language sounds so harsh and violent. There are psalms of thanksgiving which express gratitude for God or to God for his abundant blessings. Psalm 8 would be an example. There are pilgrimage psalms, which are celebrative psalms to be sung as the Israelites traveled to Jerusalem for their annual feasts. And there are enthronement psalms, which describe God's sovereign rule over all that he has made. It is unclear when exactly the psalms as they now stand were collected and compiled into their final form, but the final edition must have been completed sometime between Malachi and Matthew in the intertestamental period. It is likely that they were compiled progressively over time, and this is demonstrated by the fact that they are divided into five books. Book 1 goes from Psalms 1 to 41, book 2, 42 to 72, book 3, 73 to 89, book 4, 90 to 106, and book 5, 107 to 110. Each of those books ends with a soaring doxology of praise and glory to God. And the theory is that each book was collected and utilized at different moments throughout the history of Israel and that their contents reflect the present situation of the covenant community at that time. And so one of the things we're going to do as we go through these Psalms is we're going to do our best to establish the the biblical and the historical context in which these psalms were written. That's going to help us provide background for what what is causing the psalmist to cry out in the way that he does. Well, there's a lot more that could be said about the psalms, for instance, about the nature and feature of Hebrew poetry or its use in the corporate liturgy of temple worship, but this introduction will have to suffice for today. I do want to make one final remark that is important, particularly as we reflect upon the first psalm. The psalms are not arranged haphazardly. It's not as if the ancient Hebrews took all of their favorite songs and just sort of spread them all out on a table and then picked them up at random. There is order, there is purpose to their arrangement. Most of the time, that purpose is not explicitly stated, and we, it's impossible for, to, for us to know it with certainty what that purpose may be, but one thing is abundantly clear. They wanted what became the first psalm to come first. There's something about Psalm 1 that they thought would serve as a fitting introduction to the other 149 Psalms, and it is not difficult to see why. Psalm 1 captures in six verses what is the essential message of the entire Psalter. Indeed, the essential message of all of Scripture. A message that Oxenham captured well. To every man there openeth a highway and a low, and every man decideth the way his soul shall go. The highway and the low represent the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. So who are these two different characters which inhabit the Psalms, indeed inhabit all of Scripture and all of life? And what 
do their respective ways look like and where do they lead? These are the questions which the first psalm seeks to answer. It's broken into three stanzas. Each stanza has two verses each. And we're going to take each stanza one at a time and we're going to see three fundamental characteristics of the righteous that separates them from the wicked. First, the righteous man and the wicked man have two very different sources of authority. Their respective lives are established on two very different foundations. And this leads to two very different ways of life. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now before we talk about that foundation upon which the life of the godly is built, I want to draw your attention to the very first word of the Psalms, the very first word of Psalm 1. It's the word blessed. In the Hebrew, that word is repeated, which indicates that it's plural, and it announces the blessing, or the blessings rather, that come to the righteous man, and that they are abundant, they're manifold, and that they're rich. Its Greek equivalent, by the way, is used in a similar fashion by Jesus when he gives his Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. The word is descriptive of a happiness, in fact, happy is a good translation of that word, or the blessedness which flows from a life that is rightly ordered in the sight of God. Now, the reason I want to pause here is because as we proceed through the Psalms and as you know by experience in your own life, the godly do not always experience happiness. There are oceans of pain and sorrow and loneliness and grief and fear and frustration recorded in these pages. Not to mention moments of crushing guilt and shame, which is the result of sin. So I don't want any of us to take this opening benediction as a promise of a pain-free, sorrow-free life. The blessedness which is promised to the righteous is a blessedness as God sees it. God who sees the end from the beginning. Yet... I would be quick to add, neither let anyone say that the blessedness which is promised is entirely future, as if the picture that the Psalms depict is of a life which is horrible, but it's okay because the reward is so great. That's going too far in the other direction. The happiness which is experienced by the godly is a happiness that is known here and now. It is both now and not yet. One commentator wrote, quote, both the experience and anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises are wrapped up in this word. Or, as Paul described the Christian life, it is as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It is as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Psalm 1 works in a progression of cause and effect. I want you to look down at the text with me and and you'll see this progression flowing throughout the six verses. Verses 1 and 2 present the fork in the road. There's a decision for you to make. Are you going to go the way of the righteous or are you going to go the way of the wicked? Verses 3 and 4 then describe what it is like to walk each one of those respective paths. And verses 5 and 6 describe the radically different destinations to which each path leads. One leads to eternal blessedness in life. One leads to everlasting cursing and death. What is the place where the paths of the righteous and the wicked diverge? What is the the fork in the road that forces us to choose which path we're going to go? What is, in other words, the fundamental difference between the godly and the ungodly, the righteous and the wicked. 
The answer has to do with what is the foundational source of authority that shapes your worldview, that fuels your affections, that informs your decisions, and that determines your destiny. There are, in the end, only two foundational sources of authority. Your authority is one of two sources. It is either the world or it is the word. There is no other. And whichever authority you choose as the foundation of your life, whichever voice speaks most decisively into your heart and your mind determines your destiny. And a word of caution is in order here. If you don't make a decision, you're on the path of the world. It takes a conscious decision of repentance and faith. It's called conversion. To say, I'm no longer going to go according to the course of this world. I am going to stake my life and my destiny on the word of God and make that my authority. Make that the dominant voice which speaks into my life. Verse 1 shows us by way of negative example what it means to live according to the authority of the world. The blessed man is contrasted with the implied cursed man who walks in the counsel of the wicked, who stands in the way of sinners, and who sits in the seat of scoffers. Most scholars will see a progression, or maybe better, a digression going on in these verses, one which leads into increasing depths of iniquity. Walking leads to standing, standing leads to sitting, or in the words of one scholar, taking up permanent residence in the company of the wicked. Likewise, there is a digression in the kind of company the wicked man keeps. The word translated wicked refers to those who are convicted of an act of unrighteousness. The word translated sinners refers to those who have made a lifestyle of unrighteousness. And the word for scoffers refers to those who are actively opposed to righteousness. See, the focus is on an ever-deepening association with the wicked counsels of the world, an immersion of our life that slowly and imperceptibly yet powerfully shapes your thoughts, your attitudes, your actions, your affections, and the way that you view the entire world. Now, I want you to ask yourself, where in my life am I exposed to the worldview-shaping counsel of the wicked the lifestyle of sinners, and the blasphemy of scoffers? Where am I exposed to the counsel of the wicked, the lifestyle of sinners, and the blasphemy of the scoffers? And you know the answer to that question. You know it full well, and so do I. We just don't like to admit it. It hangs in our living rooms. It sits on our desks. It's in your pockets and your purses, maybe in your hands, even as we speak. Now, I want you to ask yourself, what effect is consistent immersion in such worldliness having upon my thoughts, my attitudes, and my actions? Because it is. We are talking about the law of sowing and reaping. And that law is as inviolable as the law of gravity. It cannot be broken. If you sow to the world, you will reap from the world. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap from the flesh. Trash in equals trash out. You cannot allow the world to be the dominant voice in your ear, the dominant image in your mind, the dominant affection in your heart, and expect then to turn around and think godly thoughts, feel godly affections, and produce godly actions. It will not happen. 
If the dominant influence in your life is wickedness, you are wicked. Verse 2 then turns around and presents the alternative. What is the dominant influence of the righteous? It is not the world, it is the word. The righteous man delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Law, Torah, is used more generally than just referring to the commandments, ordinances, and statutes found in the first five books of Moses. It's shorthand for the entire revelation of God in Scripture. The Word of God is the delight of the righteous. And I want you to focus in upon that word. Did you hear what I said? It's the delight of the righteous. It's not the duty of the righteous. It's not the drudgery of the righteous. It is the delight of the righteous. How does that happen? Because I'll tell you, the natural man does not delight in the word of God. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. You need regeneration. When a person is born again and their heart is awakened and their mind is enlightened and the Spirit of God indwells him, it produces a yearning and an affection for the Word of God that he had not previously known. For the first time in his life, he finds himself hungering for the Word of God. And more than just hungering for the Word of God, he finds himself satisfied in the Word of God. Why? Because he delights in the Word of God. That's how you can know reliably that you have been born again. Basing the reality of your conversion upon a past experience is an unreliable test. Basing the reality of your conversion, whether or not you are in fact righteous or whether you're wicked, whether you are in fact saved or whether you are lost, basing that knowledge upon whether or not you delight in the law of the Lord is a reliable test. A few weeks ago, I sat around a table upstairs with seven men in our church and we were sharing the stories of our conversion. Six out of seven of us cannot point with certainty to the moment when we passed from death to life. We have a vague idea of when it happened, but it's kind of cloudy. Six out of seven. So how do we know if we're actually converted? How do we know if we've actually been born again? Answer, we find within our hearts a delight in the law of the Lord that leads us to meditate day and night. We crave it. We feed upon it. We are satisfied by it. That is how we know. Not only does the righteous man delight in the law of the Lord, he meditates upon it. He reads it. He reflects upon it. He memorizes it. He chews upon it. He digests it. He applies it. He obeys it. The Word of God, in other words, has become the dominating influence, the foundational authority of his life. And the law of sowing and reaping once again takes effect. He sows to the Spirit, and from the Spirit he reaps life. His mind is consumed, immersed in the Word of God, And so it is being renewed, reshaped, reconfigured. And he finds his thoughts, attitudes, and finally his actions being renewed, reshaped, and reconfigured according to the image of that word and of the Son of God whom that word proclaims. The images of a man who is immersed in, consumed with the word of God, such that his life is conformed to it and transformed by it. So, self-examination time. Where are you? Are you verse 1 or are you verse 2? And I can't answer that question for you. I can't even answer that question for you on the basis of the fact that I see you at church every week. 
Lots of people go to church and they don't delight in the law of the Lord. What is the dominant voice that speaks into your life? Is it the world or is it the word? Since the law of sowing and reaping is inviolable and immutable, it should not surprise us then that these two radically different influences and sources of authority bring forth two radically different outcomes in terms of the life of the righteous and the wicked. Verses 3 and 4. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. I want to point out very briefly four major differences between the life of the wicked and the life of the righteous. First, the righteous are steadfast, immovable, and permanent, while the wicked are insubstantial, unstable, and temporary. The psalmist uses an image here. He compares the righteous to a tree which is planted. It has deep roots And therefore, it can remain through drought, wind, and age. The wicked, on the other hand, are like chaff. Chaff is that that weightless outer shell of a wheat kernel that the wind drives away when the wheat is threshed and the winnower tosses it into the air. The grain, which has substance and weight to it, falls back to the ground and remains. And the chaff, that that outer weightless shell, is just, just blown away. And the psalmist says, that's the difference between the righteous and the wicked. You've seen that play out in the life of the church. You've seen Christians who are like trees planted by streams of water. And whatever comes, be it drought or storm or wind or floods or death or cancer or disappointment or job loss, they just remain as opposed to to other professing Christians who blow into the church and then blow out just as quickly as they came in. Does your life have weight? Does it have stability? Does it have permanence? Or does it reflect the chaff? If your life is not stable, permanent, and weighty, you probably need to evaluate what is the dominant source of influence in your life. In the end, only the word of God has weight. Second, the righteous are nourished by the streams of water while the wicked dry up and waste away. That source of nourishment is, of course, the word of God, the scriptures in which he delights and on which he meditates day and night. So the scriptures are like that life-giving stream such that the roots of the soul of the righteous man run deep into the stream and are enabled to draw forth a never-ending supply of refreshment, which leads to the dominant characteristic of life and vitality. The righteous man is alive by the Spirit, nourished by the Spirit's grace, which comes through the Word. The wicked man, on the other hand, is withered and shriveled and dead. Third, the righteous are fruitful while the wicked are fruitless. He says the righteous yield their fruit in season, which is very similar to what Jesus said in his sermon on the mount. He said that the righteous man will be known by his fruits. Matthew seven seventeen: every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. It's not, it's not hard to understand, even though we make it hard at times. There are no exceptions to the rule. A righteous man is like a healthy tree. He is living, he is verdant, his branches coarse with the sap of the Spirit. He's nourished by the living water of the Word, and he therefore bears increasingly mature fruit according to the kind which benefits all who partake. What kind of fruit does the righteous man produce? Love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, to name a few. You've known them if you've been around them. They increasingly look like Jesus, who is the righteous man par excellence. You are, better sp- you are better for your time spent with them. Why? Because their life produces life-giving fruit. Their presence is refreshing rather than draining. It is life-giving rather than deadening. The wicked are not so. Their fruit is bitter, poisoned, and brings forth death. Fourth, the righteous will flourish while the wicked will perish. He says the leaves of the righteous does not wither. In other words, they persevere through trials and tribulations. And in all that he does, he prospers. Now again, it's essential that we define prosperity as the Bible defines prosperity. Prosperity does not preclude suffering. It does not preclude trial or tribulation. It does not preclude sickness or death. It does not preclude persecution or oppression at the hands of the ungodly. All of those themes are going to be unpacked as we proceed through the Psalms. Rather, the righteous prosper in that they persevere by grace so as to stand in the congregation of the righteous, verse 5 and thereby receive their everlasting inheritance. That's where their prosperity lies. Their prosperity is in their perseverance, which receives the everlasting inheritance. The righteous flourish even in this life, even in the midst of suffering, in that God grants to them their heart's greatest desire, namely himself. That's why we sang earlier, Psalm 73, set to music. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, and God gives me himself in spite of all the sufferings of this world, I am an immensely prosperous man. This theme of flourishing in the midst of suffering, flourishing in the desert, reminds me of the testimony of John Patton. You know who John Patton was? He's a 19th century Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides, uh, known known now as modern-day Vanuatu, where Hagen Wilbanks was last fall. And the missionaries from there are going to be here with us next week. Anyway, he wrote about his experience of being hunted by cannibals and hiding throughout the night in a chestnut tree. I want you to listen to his testimony. John Patton was a righteous man in the way of Psalm 1. He wrote, quote, The hours I spent hiding in that tree live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend who will not fail you then. Beloved, that's what it means to flourish. Even though to all outward appearances, Patton was perishing. On the other hand, the wicked do not endure such trials and tribulations, sufferings or sorrows. Why? Because they are insubstantial, impermanent, weightless, having no roots, no nourishment, no sap, no life. And so they are like chaff that the wind simply drives away. Finally, the righteous and the wicked have two radically different destinies. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked 
will perish. There is coming a day of judgment, and it will be a day of retribution. It will come swift and sure, and only the righteous will endure. There is no hope for the wicked. They will collapse under the fierce and fiery judgment of God and be forever expelled from the congregation of the saints and the blessed presence of God. They will, writes William Plumer, cry to the rocks and to the mountains to hide them from the face of the judge and from the wrath of the Lamb, but there will be no escape for them on that day and there will be no rescue. They will everlastingly perish. The Hebrew word there is the word abad, and it means to die or to undergo destruction. And when it is applied in the context of the final judgment, it does not refer to the annihilation of self or of being or of existence. It refers to an ongoing state of conscious destruction. It is a state of eternal devastation, of weeping, and of gnashing of teeth. And that is the fate of the wicked who walk in the way of man. Be warned, beloved. But for the righteous who walk in the way of God, who live their lives, Coram Deo, that is before his face, There will be everlasting joy and fellowship with our Creator and with all His saints. Why? Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Teach another Hebrew word. It's going to come up again and again in the Psalms. It's the Hebrew word, yada. And it refers to a knowledge by experience. Not just an intellectual knowledge of facts. If that were what the psalmist were speaking of, it would be nonsensical because God knows all facts. He knows the facts about the righteous equally well as he knows the facts about the wicked. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a covenantal knowledge. He's saying that the Lord God is in covenant with those who walk in his way. The word yadah refers to covenant love. It's the knowledge which Adam had of his wife. It's the knowledge which God has of his people. It's the knowledge which Jesus has of his bride, which is the church. It is an electing, redeeming, saving, covenantal knowledge. And it is the kind of knowledge that Jesus says he does not possess for those he describes in Matthew chapter 7, who say to him on the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name perform many miracles and in your name cast out many demons? And he will say to those who, the wicked, who walk according to the course of this world, he will say to them on that day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. The Lord knows those who are His. He knows the righteous. He does not know the wicked. So which one are you? What are we going to do with Psalm 1? What are you going to do with Psalm 1? How would God have us to respond to His word this morning? I want to suggest two responses in closing. Number one, we ought to examine ourselves. There are only two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, the way of God and the way of man, the way of the world and the way of the word. There is no middle way. There are no misty flats where most drift to and fro. When it comes to our relation to God, there is the highway, there is the low way, and there is no other. So which path are you on? William Plumer wrote, quote, the truth will come out. No man will make his case worse by honestly looking into it. And some have escaped a dreadful overthrow by finding out in time that they were self-deceived. Of all the follies of men, none can be worse than that of hiding from themselves their true condition and character. So ask yourself some searching questions right now. In fact, why don't we bow together? I want you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your head. And I want you, as best as you can, to block out every other thought, every other influence. 
And I want you to ask yourself in the presence of the living God, of his Christ, and of the Holy Spirit, these questions. What is my foundational authority? What is the dominant influence in my life? Is it the world or is it the word? Does my life reflect an increasing stability, vitality, nourishment, fruitfulness, flourishing? Is it described by the image of the healthy tree? Or is it like the chaff, insubstantial, impermanent, fruitless, soon to be driven away? Beloved, examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. Because you stand this morning before the great fork in the road between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, the way of God and the way of man, the way of life and the way of death. And after you have examined yourself, and as a necessary follow-up to the first, I want you to remember one truth to which I will lead you. There has only ever been one man who perfectly exemplified the way of the righteous in Psalm 1. Jesus Christ is the ideal righteous man. And praise God, we are not saved by how well we conform to the ideal of Psalm 1, but by how well he conformed to this ideal. And he conformed perfectly. Jesus is the righteous man of Psalm 1, and we are justified before God by trusting in His righteousness alone. My standing before God does not depend upon my rejection of the way of the wicked, but upon His. It does not depend upon my delight in the law of the Lord, which is all too often weak and frail, but upon His. It depends not upon my fruitfulness, but upon His. Beloved, we cannot live up to the righteous standard set by Psalm 1. And so I implore you, to throw yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ and to embrace His righteousness for your justification. And then this morning, choose as a justified sinner by grace through faith in the power of the Spirit to follow Him on the way of righteousness. To be righteous in the Psalms does not mean to be sinless. It means to be justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and then in the power of the grace which the Spirit supplies to walk the way of the righteous and continually be transformed into the image of Christ. Are you on that journey? The place to begin is at the cross where Jesus died for your unrighteousness and was raised for your justification. You must embrace him as he is freely offered to you by faith and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Take away my unrighteousness. Give to me your righteousness and change my heart so that I delight in the law of the Lord and meditate upon it day and night. That's how you begin to walk the way of the righteous.